U.S. Foreign Relations. Uh, welcome to one of our periodic congressional briefing series. The people on the Hill, staffers, members of Congress, uh, their interns, aides, their legislative and communication affairs directors, their foreign policy and defense advisors as well. Uh, a word briefly about this organization that hosts uh, this particular event. The National Council on U.S. Arab Relations was founded in 1983. It's 27 years old. It is a 501c3 non-governmental organization. Its vision is to place the U.S. Arab relationship on a firmer foundation than it has been, than it is, and or it's likely to become, certainly not by accident or by coincidence but rather by enough good people working at both ends of the spectrum to accentuate the positive, the mutuality of benefit, and the reciprocity of respect. What would that foundation look like? Would it be stronger, healthier, more expanded in the realms of strategic cooperation on issues pertaining to war and peace? It would be more sound economically, sounder uh, politically, sounder commercially, sound in terms of defense cooperation, sounder in terms of people-to-people -people exchanges, and educational exchange in advances on the cultural misunderstandings between both of our peoples. The mission for this vision is educational, and that's what this afternoon's event is, is all about. Now, this particular uh, focus is at one and the same time controversial and complex. It's laden and laced with politics, and no end of animus on the talk shows amongst certain uh, segments of, of Congress amongst think tanks, which is a euphemistic word for agenda tanks in this city, and uh, public policy uh, research uh, institutes. And so we seek today to be informed, to be insightful, uh, to enhance and increase everyone's knowledge and understanding of one of the more controversial uh, topics that never seems to go away in this capital, uh, but it is nowhere nearly as intense or debated or controversial in the capitals of the other 211 countries in the world, the other 192 countries of the United Nations. And that's a reason for that as well. This region that we focus on is indeed one that has much challenge, controversy, and conflict. It's perceived by many wrongly or unfairly because it's seen as exclusively a region of two kinds of oil, turmoil and the other kind. Today we're focusing on the other kind. The other kind is also laced with strategy, with economics, uh, with security issues, with supply issues, with scenarios, with even with spills. And it has to do with the laced and laden language of ending America's reliance dependence upon foreign oil, which is its own code word for Arab and Islamic oil, not Canada's, not others in the Americas as such. We have four specialists who have worked together for the better part of two decades and counting on various issues as stakeholders in the nexus of policy and strategy and analysis and positions and actions and attitudes, and trying to have Americans become more knowledgeable and responsibly informed on these issues. Our first speaker is Mr. Ms. Molly Williamson. Ms. Molly Williamson is known to most in this audience who are not interns in the sense that uh, she has been at the level of four different American cabinet departments at the deputy assistant secretary and above level. Deputy assistant secretary 
of commerce, responsible for America's trade investment, technology cooperation and joint commercial ventures with 88 countries. Also Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, in her most recent uh, position before leaving government as the Senior Foreign Policy Advisor to the Secretary of Energy. During a three-year period, 2006-2008, uh, where right in the middle of it, oil prices internationally reached their all-time high. She'll be followed by an individual who worked in the same department at a time when oil prices reached the lowest in the last 25 years. Molly Williams is now an adjunct scholar at the Middle East Institute. We welcome her to the podium. Thank you, John. I'm grateful for this wonderful opportunity uh, to join you in, in uh, meeting our colleagues and talking about this uh, important and controversial topic. I'd like to say, first of all, that uh, unlike uh, the, the uh, possible misinterpretation that my husband gives to this thing because I went to the Department of Energy is not the reason that oil went up to 147. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we have that conversation a lot. Uh, uh, let's just go over a quick uh, word about the scope of the issue. What is the order of magnitude that we're talking about? Uh, the, the average American consumes roughly twice as much energy as the average Brit who in turn consumes roughly twice as much energy as the average Russian, who in turn consumes roughly eight times as much energy as the average Indian. World demand for energy is expected to grow by 49% over the next 25 years. The global projections are that by uh, the next 20 years, we will need 53% more coal than we use today, 42% more natural gas than we use today, and 22% more oil than we use today. Fossil fuels are expected to be nearly 80% of the total world energy consumed in 2035. Today, fossil fuels comprise more than 82% of all the energy the United States consumes. The single largest component of those fossil fuels is oil. A couple of concepts. My guess is you haven't gone 48 hours without hearing the term energy independence. The United States has the world's largest coal reserves we are, this year, number one in natural gas production, thanks to shale gas. We are the third largest producer of oil in the world, the largest producer of ethanol. We lead the world in installed geothermal capacity, and we are the world's <laughs> largest producer of nuclear-generated electricity. And with all that, the United States is the single largest consumer of oil at 19 plus million barrels a day, of which we import 10 million barrels a day. If by energy independence we mean self-sufficiency, 
if by energy independence we mean living within our energy needs, consuming no more than that which we produce, we already fall far short of the mark. Lots of speakers about this issue like to talk about uh, the, uh, the huge presence of petroleum products in plastics, cosmetics, and, and the like. I, I just became a grandmother, and I'm very mindful of the petroleum product I slather on our granddaughter called Vaseline. My guess is you've also not gone the last 48 hours without hearing the concept of energy security. What do we mean by that? Well, it turns out, depending on who's doing the speaking and who's doing the listening, we mean different things. For consumers, energy security means reliable, affordable access to energy. It is the security of supply. I'm going to be able to count on having electricity tomorrow. I'm going to be able to count on finding gasoline for a fill-up. For producers, energy security means having reliable markets, reliable revenue streams, security of demand. Planning for modernization, expansion, technological innovation requires billions of dollars and multi-decades of time before anyone can reasonably expect a return on their investment. Having a marketplace with a known or reliably knowable revenue stream is essential for that planning. Neither consumer nor producer wants to be held hostage to the behavior of the other. When we talk about energy security, we need to talk about where they're coming from intellectually and what it is they're looking for as operational effectiveness. The insurance to not be held hostage by the behavior of the other, each using the term energy security, is in diversification. So for the sake of the consumer to not be held hostage by the behavior of suppliers means developing a diversification of fuels, a diversification of sources for those fuels, and routes by which one receives them. For the producer of energy, the diversification is in the marketplace so as to not be held hostage by a primary consumer who, for whatever reason, is either unwilling or unable to be the chief client. So, if, for example, someone were to say, on the record, out loud, shouting at the highest political levels, we don't want foreign oil. We're not going to buy it. We're getting off it. If it's available, we're not going to take it. Sends the signal to the supplier, you better diversify your marketplace. Your chief customer, for decades in the United States, has declared 
it wants to make you obsolete. So you would be irresponsible as an energy producer to not seek to develop relationships, joint ventures, projects with other markets to receive your product, refine your product, transport your product. It would be folly to not take seriously the language from your chief customer. I mentioned demand growth. There is a lot of scholarship here. I'm gonna, we don't have time to go into it, but I'm going to ask you to um, take it as a, as a, uh, a, a genuine uh, matter of research. That the primary driver of fuel consumption, energy use, is economic growth and development. So as we look at the tremendous growth of Asia and Middle East countries, we are looking at greater fuel usage with which to fuel that economic growth. The question is, is there enough supply to meet these demands? And here we have two kinds of issues. One is certainly geological. Where is it? How much is there? Nobody's saying it's not finite, but if you don't know what the totality of your reserve is, how do you know when you've hit the peak oil mark of halfway uh, extraction and, and usage? The other element, though, is not geological, but political. And that has to do with political decisions made by governments, behavior decisions and conduct by consumers, technology innovation. Example, 40 years ago, the definition of full production of an oil field was 40%. If you got 40% of the oil, you had full production. Today, with that technology's innovation, the definition of full production has changed. It's 70%. Doesn't mean there was suddenly more oil. It just means that the technology has been sufficiently refined to make it possible to get at it. Uh, similar kind of story with respect uh, to shale gas, for example. Um, if we look at the issue of global energy as a question of oh boy, got one of these. Um, uh, as a question of both geology and the political and consumption consumption behavior, the questions are where is it? Can it be accessed? At what cost? Not only financial cost but environmental cost. Uh, uh, huge and important uh, focus, the extent to which uh, we are looking at global economic health. We've had an economic recession, recession for the last 18 months that have produced a tightening of the belt. We are in fact consuming 3 million barrels a day less oil than we were 18 months ago. Not only uh, the, the uh, international um, uh, cooperation and, uh, and health from the Arab oil producing region, which is 
among the fastest growing for their own economic development along with China and India. So that's more of their own product going into their own development as distinct from necessarily going into the marketplace. Uh, and the extent to which we as consumers and producers talk to each other, coordinate with each other, cooperate in international research and development. Uh, and all, all of my uh, fellow panelists will be talking about various aspects of this. Um, if there's one thought to take away from uh, this particular uh, discussion, it is, please, that resource wars are not inevitable. There are important ways in which we are now and can expand international cooperation, coordination, uh, and research to meet the world's growing needs for energy without having it come at the expense of any, any one else. Thank you very much. Thank you, Molly. The way that we uh, will proceed is to have these opening uh, statements going from the macro to the medial to the micro, and then uh, q and discussion for the better part of an hour, if we can uh, keep to that kind of schedule. And uh, four by six cards on which we uh, advise you to write your questions and make the questions more than comments uh, to the speakers, and they will answer the questions from the podium. We next now have Guy Caruso who's into his second stint with the Center for Strategic and International Studies, one of the more venerable, uh, serious um, policy research institutes in the nation's capital. And from 1988 to 2000, he was senior advisor to CSIS's Energy Security uh, Project, which is an ongoing project, as is one of his other uh, colleagues here. But from 2002 to 2008, again during the time when the price reached all-time level highs, he was the administrator of the Energy Information Agency. And though the title may be bland and innocuous, uh, it deals with the gut jugular issues for analysis and, and policy, and particularly in terms of data, particularly in terms of forecast as, as well as, as analysis. And prior to uh, all of that, uh, he had some 30 years in America's uh, energy industry. Uh, so he has not only the educational, scientific research and publication and briefing uh, background, uh, but having been a practitioner in the field with respect to which he will teach us a lot today, Dr. Russo. Thank you very, very much, John. And, uh, it's a real pleasure to be here, and uh, especially to be with uh, three of my former and current colleagues, uh, Rhonda, Molly, and Sarah. And it's uh, great to be part of uh, the uh, organization again, John, and see so many uh, longtime friends here. Uh, it's, a, it's much more uh, comfortable to be here than be one floor above uh, testifying about, uh, well, I guess today's here it was oil spills, but uh, when I was administrator of EIA, it often had to do with uh, oil prices, and uh, Molly has done a, a very good job of, uh, of setting up, setting the scene 
Uh, and so I won't go into a lot of uh, detail about the, uh, the future of oil of energy, but I think it's important to make one comment about the uh, future of fossil fuels and what the implications are for the geopolitics and for the environment and, and, other, and that is that it takes a very long time to make uh, what seems like small changes. When you see EIA coming out with a new forecast which says uh, fossil fuels will be 78% of the world's energy in 20 years from now compared to 82 right now, that sounds like a small change. But what it, what it really indicates is that it takes many decades to turn this huge energy industry and infrastructure around. And I think that's, you know, if I had to leave one thought with you about the numbers today, it's that we all want to change the picture that uh, Molly just presented for the better, for the better geopolitically, for the better economically and environmentally. But we've got, we have to be realistic. It can't be done overnight, despite wonderful aspirations of, uh, of many of our, uh, our bosses and, and certainly the, the different administrations. It, it takes a long time, and, and we're doing this in the midst of what we call at CSIS a, a very uh, significant changing energy landscape on a global basis. Uh, Molly alluded to one of the most important parts of that, and that is the growing uh, demand from emerging economies. And, the, and that's good because that means economic development is uh, allowing those countries to uh, expand their use of energy and the living standards of their people, so that's a good thing. But it does present challenges, as, uh, as we all know. Most recently, the uh, discussions about uh, global climate change. Uh, without China, India, and the other emerging economies participating somehow, you know, it's, it's a non-starter to think about some of these scenarios. And Sarah's going to get into more detail about that. And then there's the issue of uh, peak oil that Molly alluded to. We've done a lot of work, both uh, during my time at the Energy Information Administration and now at CSIS, and we're pretty convinced it's not really a resource issue for, uh, particularly for oil and uh, increasingly natural gas, but it's the above-the-ground issues that we're going to talk about today. And then when you think about where will the investment come from to grow the supply of oil, natural gas, renewables, all the fuels that we're going to need, uh, we have an a, a increasingly uh, changing uh, set of players, and that includes the national oil companies, and many of the uh, countries uh, that we're talking about here today that will need to make enormous investments in both oil and natural gas and in particularly in emerging economies in the electric power sector. Now, that's why uh, the dependence on uh, fossil fuels and particularly coal 
in places like China and India is so important to this uh, environmental debate. And uh, these new players have different business plans, and, and certainly I think one of the clear implications of the aftermath of this terrible tragedy of the oil spill will mean that there will be increasing sensitivity to the environment, and there's going to be increased cost to developing the energy we need, whether it, no matter whether it's fossil fuels or non-fossil fuels. And it's going to take longer because I think no matter where we come out nationally on this, no company is going to want to risk its future without taking the most stringent precautions that, that they aren't put in a position that BP is in today. So I think you'll see companies taking a much more conservative attitude when it comes to developing resources. That's going to add to costs, going to add to time, and I think all other things being equal, probably will increase uh, the share of uh, certainly oil and possibly natural gas that will come from the uh, Middle Eastern region. So as we, as we look forward to uh, the next several decades, it's very important that, uh, that this investment point that Molly made that is going to going to take many decades to replace the oil that's depleting uh, on a daily basis. All the fields that are being produced now have a natural decline rate. So we not only need to meet growth in demand from places like China and India, but we also need to replace that depletion uh, curve. And non-OPEC countries are not, don't, do not have sufficient resources to, uh, to meet that need. So we, largely from the uh, Middle Eastern region of the uh, OPEC uh, countries uh, that we need this new demand. Let me, uh, let me just conclude by saying what I think the, some of the key uh, challenges are. And I think one certainly is uh, what will what will happen with respect to uh, the Iranian situation, how that all plays out currently with sanctions. Uh, Iran itself is uh, not a big supplier to, uh, to the United States or other developed countries, but it's a very important supplier to China. So clearly China has a lot of uh, concerns about uh, how that plays out. Uh, I think on the good news side of resources, the uh, development of Iraqi resources, which have been severely under-invested uh, in for the last several decades, can become a huge new supplier. And the uh, auction that took place last year could lead to as much as four or five million barrels a day of new supply from Iraq in the next decade or so. Even more if you go by the uh, Iraqi aspirations. So that's that's a positive thing. But I do think that the uh, the oil spill in its aftermath will add to both the timing and the cost of uh, 
of new supplies of oil and potentially gas and will certainly lead to, uh, I think, uh, tighter regulation, even extending to areas which have no direct relation to the oil spill, such as the shale gas development in the United States. So it's, these, are, these are some of the challenges that I uh, hope we'll be able to discuss more in the question and answer period, and we'll hear more about some of these things from uh, Rhonda and, uh, and Sarah. So uh, once again, John, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thanks, Lisa. Molly that you so well presented today, it's the reality. 
we are going to be petroleum dependent. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try here in the United States with our ingenuity to develop alternative range of energy and energy efficient products as a consumer society. But because the mantra recently, and politically expedient, particularly after 9-11, has become the United States should become less dependent on foreign oil, it has become a political liability. In essence, the juxtaposition of the word dependence on foreign oil has meant Arab and Middle East oil. Code word, terrorism. Code word, they don't like us very much. And many of that, much of that, is certainly tied to domestic national security here in the United States. So the perception is out there certainly driven by political factors, and, and I must say the media as well, that somehow most of the oil here consumed in the United States comes from the Arab world. That, ladies and gentlemen, is not true. And it's so hard, I know, having served and served principles in the political arena, so very, very hard to tell the American public what the truth is. The truth of the matter is the majority of oil imported into the United States comes from, everyone cover your ears, Canada and Mexico. Canada and Mexico, those evil neighbors. Canada and Mexico. Uh, the reality is, and I took a look at Guy, the statistics, I think, as of this month. Number one was Canada, number two was Mexico. Uh, number three was uh, Nigeria. And number four was Saudi Arabia. Another fallacy, or should I say another truth, is let's take a look at the OPEC members. The OPEC members are often, of course, the target of many people's anger. The reality is the OPEC membership is made up of 12 countries. Algeria, Angola, Ecuador, Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Libya, Nigeria, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Venezuela. Sorry to give everybody a geography lesson here, but I'm going to pull out the ones that are in the Arab countries and leave the ones that aren't. Out of the 12 members, Algeria, P.S., by the way, Iran is not an Arab country. Okay. So, Algeria, Iraq, Kuwait, Libya, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. Of those particular countries, let me give you another reality. Not one drop of oil, zippy, comes from the United Arab Emirates into the United States. That's the same evil United Arab Emirates of the Dubai ports world. That's the same fake sex in the city uh, scene of Abu Dhabi. Nothing comes from the United Arab Emirates. And by the way, I just learned that most recently from a, a very, very smart individual from the United Arab Emirates Embassy. So, working with those statistics, how do you explain the U.S. public attitudes towards foreign oil? Well, I explain it like this. Every morning I'm driving to work. No, I don't drive in hybrid. I'm sorry. But every morning I'm driving to work and I hear this commercial. Do you know the U.S. has more gas, natural gas, than Saudi Arabia has oil? Scare tactics. Or how about, 
I was personally offended and furious over T. Boone Pickens, Mr. Oil Man himself, running ads with Arabic music, Arabic lettering, scaring the heck out of America, talking about America's energy dependence on foreign oil. These are fallacies, folks. We've been beating these fallacies to the American public from the media and from the politicians. So what is the truth of the matter about our relationship with the Arab world when it comes to petroleum and oil? The truth of the matter, and this has been my experience working in the industry, is that ladies and gentlemen, it's nothing more than a business relationship. It's not love, and it certainly isn't politics. It's business. The example I use is look at the 1970s oil embargo. After that, and the effects of that, OPEC swore they would never use oil as a weapon. And since then, look at all of the turmoil politically that has engaged in since the 1970s through now with respect to the Arab world in the United States. OPEC has never used oil as a weapon since then. The reality is it's a commodity, and in fact, most recently, it has become a financial asset traded on Wall Street. There's a heck of a lot of people on Wall Street that have made a tremendous amount of money trading oil futures on Wall Street, which I do believe has caused the most recent spike in 2008 of oil. And finally, the great smart men and women of this House and of the Senate finally have caught on to that, that it's not evil OPEC rubbing their hands and raising the price of oil. It's actually the traders on Wall Street that are doing it. And because of that, they've instituted regulatory reform with respect to the Commodities Future Trading Commission to regulate the trading of oil futures, which is exactly what they should be doing. Um, I'll just finish my remarks by talking a little bit about the producer-consumer dialogue, which I believe goes to the heart of what we really need to do as a consuming nation. The lack of transparency bothers us as a consuming nation. We really don't know how much oil is out there from the producing nations. And because of that, it makes us very uncomfortable. When I was at the Department of Energy, from 2001 to 2003, I was presented with a proposal for a new body called the International Energy Forum, which is now based in Saudi Arabia. I'm glad to announce that I think in 2004, the US government did fund the International Energy Forum and is now up and running. And it is a place, not separately where producers can meet and talk, and not separately where consumers can meet and talk, but where producers and consumers can justifiably and reliably come together and share data with each other. And I do believe that that should be the future for as long as the United States is going to become dependent on petroleum as a resource that the way to go forward to make both producer and consumer feel comfortable is to continue to dialogue, in fact, within that body itself, the International Energy Forum. So I'll conclude my remarks today um, and hand it over to Sarah, which I know you're going to talk a little bit about uh, renewable energies. But I will finish up by saying this. Having traveled the Middle East and having traveled throughout the region quite frequently, um, don't be alarmed in thinking <laughs> That in, that in the Arab world, they're only focused on petroleum. The reality is there are many, many efforts within the Arab world to focus on renewable and energy-efficient technologies, 
Some examples that I'll give is in Saudi Arabia, King Abdullah University for Science and Technology is moving forward on renewable mandates. Of course, Mazdar in the United Arab Emirates is one of their largest projects there. Green City, they've got a nuclear program going. Um, they um, attended or will be attending the U.S. Clean Energy Summit being held here in Washington in July. It was also, the UAE, by the way, was picked as the home of the International Renewable Energy Agency. Uh, Qatar has an Alternative Energy Investment Summit in May of this year. And also Libya is very interested in solar and nuclear technology. So I end my remarks only to say that I think the Arab world has got this idea that petroleum won't go on forever. But they are thinking forward and they are moving forward on renewable ground. Thank you. Thank you, Rhonda, and uh, segueing to that talk and that final speaker before we open this to discussion, I wanted to strike the theme of uh, youth leadership development. Uh, we have in the audience perhaps uh, a majority who uh, are under 23, 24 years of age. This is just a supposition on my side here. Uh, since 1983, the National Council has had an annual Arab-U.S. Relations Leadership Development Program is held in 14 cities annually. And from uh, January to April each year, we put 2,150 students through this program, teaching them polymetric procedure, how to run meetings, how to define issues, how to arrange an agenda, how to arrange and order priority issues on an agenda, how to build coalitions, how to debate in 30 seconds, one minute, three minutes, five minutes, uh, as well as win with grace and lose with grace. Uh, we have uh, 27 uh, National Council interns here working full-time from June 1st to August the uh, 10th. Some of them are in institutions uh, represented here. They work all day long to get the professional organization and discipline and working as a teamwork and a bearing and demeanor and that professionalism before they begin their careers. And four times a week we have for them a cerebral massage, uh, of which uh, today is, is one, one example. If uh, the interns from the National Council could stand just for a second so we, we see where you are.
report to one source can charge as much as a million dollars a day. And they have to be economic and geopolitical and developmental implications when they leave the offshore waters of the United States and go some distance elsewhere. Vladislav Nassera. My name is Sarah, and I just want to say thank you very much for the opportunity to be here. Well, thank you to the National Council. It's, it's really a pleasure, and thanks to all of you. Uh, I really look forward to these opportunities, especially to serve on such a distinguished panel. Uh, it's, it's an honor for me. Uh, I was asked to speak about, uh, or to, to give some comments so that we could, as, as a group, explore the changing energy future and what the emergence of more environmental, environmentally sensitive green energy technologies might mean, both in an economic sense in a national and regional security framework. Uh, that sounds like a PhD dissertation, or at least a graduate level course. I won't be able to do that in eight minutes, but um, so what I hoped to do was maybe uh, give you some thoughts um, about sort of this notion of a transition to a low carbon energy economy uh, and uh, within the context of, of how we've been thinking about them uh, in, in sort of the current political uh, and economic framework. Um, so, so what do I mean when I say a transition to a secure low carbon energy economy? For, for a long time, uh, renewables development, low carbon energy uh, production, so anything like solar, wind, geothermal, um, and even conventional power generation uh, from carbon-based sources, so coal and natural gas, um, using something called carbon capture sequestration technology, which takes the CO2 out uh, of the flue stream and sticks it underground for long-term storage. Um, any of those types of technological options, they've been around for a long time. Um, it's, there's, there's nothing new, and they've been driven by a whole host of, uh, of, of drivers and factors, and some of those had to do with environmental concerns, um, and some of them had to do with security concerns, like Molly had, had mentioned, um, that really having a diverse source, uh, diversity in your sources of energy as well as your suppliers of energy um, was, was long been viewed as sort of key to, uh, to energy security and global economic security. Um, but in the last several years, climate change, uh, concern over the pace and nature of how the U.S. climate is changing and the impacts that that might have uh, on global society, on the environment, uh, on, on natural life uh, in general, um, has really been sort of the driving consideration, uh, much to this dismay of a lot of other folks in the environmental community, I might mention, um, uh, for driving changes in the energy system we have. And currently we have an energy system, I'm not going to repeat the statistics, um, that, is, that is predominated by uh, fossil-based fuels, so coal, oil, and natural gas. Um, and that system, as everyone has said on, on the panel, and everyone here can probably appreciate, um, it's taken a great deal of time to build up, um, a great deal of uh, investment. Um, it, is, it is sort of uh, entrenched in a way in our everyday lives, especially within the developed economies, um, that any changes to that system are pretty hard to overcome. There's momentum. There's a, 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 a sort of inherent um, uh, momentum behind having that kind of infrastructure and that kind of system in place that makes new entrants, new technologies, things that aren't necessarily cost competitive, harder to put into that system. Um, and so over the last couple of years, there was a, a, a big political push globally, not just here in the United States, but certainly since the, uh, the start of this new uh, administration, here in the United States, um, to really take more aggressive action to make a transition to these lower carbon fuels because of a concern about climate change. So trying to decarbonize the energy sector. Um, 
And unfortunately, there was a there was a great deal of optimism in 2009 about global discussions that were happening within the UN context about being able um, to, to finally have some globally coordinated action to 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 not only come to some sort of global agreement about how we feel about climate change, what we think we should do about reducing emissions, um, but also how we're going to go about it and to what extent. Um, and really, this is important, you know, even if you're not an environmentalist or this is not your primary concern or reason for interest in region or energy, um, this is important because finally it gave a pace and a scale time frame for how to decarbonize the energy sector, right? It would have been a global agreement, and, to, and we can get into this in the, the Q&A, but a discussion about how fast and how much energy we have to replace with something that's low carbon. And one of the things that you know, I sort of want to talk about within, as a thread in, in my remarks, and I'll come, come back to it at the end, is that this has primarily been seen as a point of conflict between uh, the folks who are, are trying to advocate for a lower, lower carbon energy base um, and the folks that actually produce uh, much of the fossil fuels um, that are consumed by society. These are, have long been seen as um, mutually uh, 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 sort of combative uh, perspectives to come at the energy system, right? The folks that produce these, these fossil-based fuels couldn't possibly be in favor of this transition. And for a long time, that's actually been the case. Um, but what, I, what I'd like to point out is that, you know, when you look ahead at, at sort of the business-as-usual forecasts or projections that both Molly and Guy talked about, and here's where maybe having some slides would have been useful, but um, you look at the future of renewable energy and, and even, you know, low-carbon energy sources like nuclear power, um, and there's actually uh, there's actually a significant significant amount of potential out there for those sources anyway, right? And largely that's because as we look out to the future of energy production, there is you know there are these major new consumers coming on board. They're concerned about their energy security, just like traditional energy consumers in OECD countries um, are concerned about the sources and the the cost of their supplies of energy. Um, and so adding to this base with renewable energy with nuclear power. Um, is it attractive from a security standpoint? Um, it, it's getting more attractive from an economic standpoint. I mean, it's also attractive for uh, for the environmental reasons that are traditionally associated with these kinds of energy sources. And that's not in a world uh, where we're where getting at the carbon problem, uh, getting at climate change is a predominant concern. Um, you see, as, as, uh, as Guy talked about, what appear to be very small changes over a, a, a you know, 10, 20, 30 year period of time in the share of renewables, um, but, but it's actually quite large. Um, it's actually a, a, a pretty significant uh, uh, change. If you look at a world in which you're actually trying to remove the carbon from the system, the change is massive. Um, and there is no doubt about the fact that even if you were to have some sort of uh, international climate agreement that, that said, we'd like to reduce emissions globally 50% by 2050, which is what's been on the table, uh, or 80, uh, then that, that that transition would be much more aggressive, and it would probably be, um, it would require a great deal of, of sort of a sea change in how we invest money. So it would go away from investing money um, in things like perpetuating the current system we have and trying to bring in these new technologies. So why is that a problem? Why, why is that a point of contention? Um, and I think that one of the real sort of disagreements, and I agree with some of my colleagues, a lot of a lot of, sort of the tension between um, the U.S. and parts of the world that are producers of this energy um, has been uh, uh, because of the, the nature of our rhetoric. 
Um, we tend to like to get people excited about doing something that's hard or might be costly, like putting renewable energy into, uh, into the current energy system, by getting them exercised about things that make them impassioned. Um, unfortunately, all the polling in the world says whether you ask the American public or the public in general whether they'd like to do something about getting off of oil for all of these nefarious reasons we talk about, or they'd like to get off of it for climate change reasons, they're not willing to pay more either way. So at the base, it's an economic concern. And that's where, um, when you sort of take away some of those, uh, those overtones of political rhetoric, you can get at what is um, really a massive global challenge. Um, you look up to the year 2050, and you look at most of these models, decarbonizing the energy sector is a power generation energy efficiency exercise. Um, oil stays in the system for a long period of time. It's not, it's not, it's not anywhere near sort of the magnitude um, that you see uh, uh, in, in sort of unconstrained scenarios. But there's a lot of room there for a conversation, a conversation about how the world sort of transitions the system. And make no mistake, it's not um, a challenge that's easy enough that we don't have to be having these conversations. Um, so in the interest of time, I'm going to sort of leave it there, and I'm happy to get more of your detailed questions uh, uh, in, in the Q&A session. But I did want to you know, point out that this is, this is probably one of the areas where um, folks assume that climate and energy must be a point of conflict between the two regions of the world that we're talking about today, and most of the other regions um, that are, are concerned about whether energy is coming from uh, 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 in the decades to come. And it doesn't necessarily have to be. The challenge is big enough, um, and the time scales are long enough that these can be very productive and strategic uh, conversations. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Now we're for a question and answer discussion period. And we want to try something uh, different this time on the view that often um, questions are, are greater take on take away value uh, than answers uh, because some questions don't have uh, even difficult answers, let alone uh, easy ones. And because there are a number of educators in the audience as well as students who are looking for term papers and research and uh, the like, I'm going to read them very quickly, the ones that have a whole bunch of them, but I'll read them very quickly so that our panelists are uh, already pumping the adrenaline to think of what their response might be, and then we'll go through them in this sequence. What are the costs and impact of the current Gulf of Mexico oil spill on global energy markets in economic terms, in supply terms, in psychological terms? What, re what relations are the Arab world producing states forming with China? What does this mean for the United States in the future? And how will China's rapidly increasing oil consumption affect global energy markets? What is the impact particularly of China's increasing purchase of Saudi Arabia's oil production? To whom does China uh, look uh, in its uh, for its other major energy suppliers? Will China move away from full use of its extensive coal reserves? Third, with the sanctions and lack of investment in oil production in Iran, what effect does this have on the GCC countries or others of note? And what would be the security impact on GCC countries if Iran developed nuclear weapons? What security actions would they take from that? For those who don't know what the GCC is, it's since 1981, Kuwait, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, part of the United Arab Emirates, and Oman. How will the recovery of Iraq's oil production affect the market in terms of price, 
competition and support. I know you um, mentioned that uh, in passing at the end there. What threats does Iran pose to the Strait of Hormuz transit lines? What could be the security impact with the development of nuclear programs in the Gulf states? Nuclear energy for electrical generation appears to be making a big comeback. How are we overcoming, if at all, earlier concerns about factors like reactor safety, radioactive waste, spillover uh, to weapons uh, development? Next to the last, does Russia show signs that they that it is looking to form relations with strategic places in the Middle East. And all these relations based on energy, trade, what does this mean for the Middle East, for Russia and the United States? What is the impact of Russian energy production on global security, especially in Europe and Central Asia? And will Russia be a major player in the future development of Iran's energy resources and lands? What are the politics of controlling carbon emissions here in the United States as well as globally. Can a trap cap and trade system work? Will such a system become politically feasible? What are the alternatives to cap and trade? All of those are policy specific and, and couldn't be more relevant. So the first one, uh, what are the cost and impact of the current Gulf of Mexico oil spill on global energy markets in economic terms, in supply terms, in psychological terms, I'll moderate from the panel here. Who would like to respond to that? Guy. Well, I uh, thank you, John. Thank, thank you for a really excellent set of questions. Um, I think it goes far beyond whatever the ultimate cost to BP is. There have been estimates of uh, 50 billion up to maybe even 100 billion. But I think uh, that's only the the uh, direct cost, and I think the indirect cost, as I mentioned, will be that uh, there will be much more stringent uh, oversight and regulation, not only in the United States, but I believe this will be a, become a global. Uh, it will it will spill over to the uh, other uh, countries where. Uh, especially where uh, deep water drilling is. Right now that is Brazil and Angola and other parts of the uh, Gulf of Guinea in uh, uh, West Africa. So I think it's going to add to the cost of uh, exploring for and developing offshore oil and natural gas around the world. So I think it will far exceed the 50 to maybe 100 billion direct costs and maybe add as much as uh, several dollars per barrel to the uh, cost of oil. And I think on a policy basis, uh, what it will likely do is delay development and make the U.S. Uh, a bit more dependent on foreign oil. And ironically, most of that oil will come to the United States, uh, the incremental oil will come by tanker which is probably more vulnerable to spills than, than drilling. I mean, that's, uh, that's kind of unfortunate, but I believe that's the case. All right, would you like to add something? Thank you. I, I agree uh, wholly with uh, Guy's analysis, and I would add to that a psychological impact 
uh, for anybody who considers the siting, the permitting, the building of any in, uh, in, in industrial um, operation nearby. This is the not in my backyard syndrome. And that will be true not just for uh, uh, deep water drilling, that will be true for refining, that will be true for electricity generation, whether from uh, coal use, natural gas. I think that would impact as well on how um, the shale gas, is this okay? Shale gas um, uh, with respect to water, uh, concerns uh, about um, uh, attractiveness of wind farms. Uh, I, I think the impact will be across the board, across industry. People are going to worry about uh, unintended uh, environmental degradation. All right, uh, next shifting to China. And will China's rapidly increasing world consumption affect global energy markets? What is the impact, particularly, of China's increasing purchase of Saudi Arabian oil production? To whom does China look for its other major energy supplies? And will China move away from full use of its extensive uh, coal reserves? And a subset of that question, what relations are the Arab oil producing states forming with China? What does this mean for the United States in the future? Rhonda. Um, well, with respect to perhaps, 
Um, so I think it's um, it's an interesting development, one that we should keep our eye on, certainly. Oh, I was going to um, just, um, first of all, I agree with Rhonda, I agree with her analysis completely. Um, the Chinese uh, hunger for energy is across industry, it's across the board. Um, they're building uh, one coal-fired electricity generating plant a week. Uh, they have plans for dozens of uh, new nuclear electricity generating uh, plants, uh, as well as working a, uh, a series of um, joint ventures uh, with the uh, oil producing countries of uh, the Arab Gulf, uh, not only to build more terminals so they can receive more product, but more refineries so they can refine more product, more pipelines so they can transport more product. It's an across the board dedicated to growing that economy uh, as quickly as possible. Uh, and of course, they have a burgeoning middle class that has pent up demand for middle class consumer. Uh, items, uh, not the least of which are cars. And so um, China has doubled its fleet of uh, 25 million cars in three years and has now surpassed the United States as the largest uh, market for cars. Um, we have 240 million vehicles and only 314 million people, so some of our people must have more than one car. Um, that would imply saturation of our market and uh, an unlimited opportunity uh, for uh, consumers in China. Third question. With the sanctions and lack of investment in oil production in Iran, what effect does this have on the GCC countries? And related, what would be the security impact on GCC countries if Iran developed nuclear weapons? What security actions would they take from there? If there's uh, no take for that, um, truth, truth in lending here. Um, I'm a member of the Department of State's International Economic uh, Policy Advisory Committee. That 18 of us on that committee, uh, there's only one person who specializes in the Arab countries, the Middle East, and the Islamic world on that committee. Uh, I'm also a member of the subcommittee on Iran sanctions. That eight of us on that committee. Seven have had no exposure or experience uh, in the Arab countries, the Middle East, or the Islamic world. If you find something wrong with that picture, then there's something wrong with that picture. Uh, <laughs> okay, here we go. Um, another truth here. I have a little bit of experience with a country that happened to be under sanctions for 20 years. Um, no matter what the smart men and women in this building and across the way think, Sanctions don't work. There's something called the black market, and the black market is pretty extraordinary in the energy industry. So although Iran's petroleum production is not what it should be, even under sanctions, under the best of sanctions, under the best of world sanctions, they're going to get the spare parts they need. That's the truth. That's the reality. That being said, um, there's no question, certainly don't want to speak for the GCC. I know there are representatives from the embassies here in the room. I know that they are concerned from a security perspective. There's not one country in the GCC that won't privately tell 
our U.S. government and the administration that they are extremely concerned about the nuclear development program in Iran and the highly enriched uranium. The fact of the matter is, and this is what I see as an integral part of our problem in the region of power in the United States, is the lack of intelligence. Our intelligence failure in the Arab and Islamic world, but particularly in Iran, is an extreme problem. Uh, we really don't know what they have. <laughs> you know, I hate to tell you. We don't know what they have. In the same vein that when I was serving in the administration, we didn't know what Iraq had. We didn't know what their supplies looked like. We had no human intelligence. And we continue to have no human, very little human intelligence in this area because we don't have linguists, we don't have experts that speak Farsi and Arabic that are serving in the intelligence forces because of security clearance issues. It's a broader issue, I won't delve into it, only to say that there's no question the GCC is concerned about it. The question is, what are they going to do about it? Um, and I leave that up to those representatives who might be in the room and want to address that. One further comment on that in the recent set of, most recent, most recent set of sanctions uh, targeting an additional number of institutions as well as individuals. If one reads the, the text of it, uh, fast forward to around the middle of it, and the most operative word is also the shortest word, one vowel, one consonant. It's the word if, especially if a country has reason to believe that a ship transiting its water or using its port facilities uh, is carrying materials, services, goods in violation of the spirit and letter of the sanctions, uh, then it uh, will board uh, that ship to check its consignment or inspect it. But the word if places the burden on a particular country. And India and the UAE are two that would have the upper hand on this. India has a refinery called Reliant Refinery. It's the biggest producers of energy imports into Iran. And it looks as though for the foreseeable future, Iran will remain reliant on Reliant and India will remain reliant on the line in terms of the mutuality of benefit and reciprocity of reward. So how does one get around that in terms of U.S.-India strategic and geopolitical relations? And in the case of the UAE, the figures vary according to some who know what they're talking about, that there are as many as 500,000 Iranians living in the Emirate of Dubai alone. Others say, no, the figure is closer to 225,000, but the other half of two and throwing on a regular basis. And so that's part of the lifeblood of Dubai, which has only nine interests, business, business, and business, commerce, commerce, and commerce, and trade, trade, and trade. Uh, so that aspect of it does have the geopolitical implications that uh, Ms. Ladislaw focuses on in the region. Uh, perhaps this one is for you, Guy. How will the, how will the recovery of Iraq's war production affect the market in terms of price, competitive, and supply. Then you might add uh, whether and when that recovery uh, would likely come into being. Thank you, John. Uh, as I mentioned in my remarks, the Iraqi government has uh, aspirations for large increase in production, and the auctions that they uh, agreed to uh, included with companies last 
year, they had a projected increase in Iraqi production of uh, 10 million barrels a day by uh, within the next 10 years. That's very optimistic. If the Iraqi goals were to be achieved, that would make a significant difference in, in oil prices, because even with growth in China and India and elsewhere, uh, most analysts think it will be very difficult to achieve those goals. But in the EIA's latest outlook, they're talking about uh, five to six million barrels a day of production in Iraq year 2020-25. Uh, so it makes a big difference as to which of those projections you uh, accept. But nevertheless, I think Iraq is the one area where the potential for new supply uh, could affect the uh, projections of, uh, of, of uh, oil prices. Uh, but it all depends on the uh, ability to actually, uh, the security of being able to make these investments on a timely basis. All right. Next, we have um, nuclear energy for electrical generation, which appears to be making a very big comeback. Have we overcome earlier concerns about factors like reactor safety, radioactive waste, spillover to weapons uh, development? And if any of you want to talk about the reactor at Bushir uh, in Iran, and uh, it's possibly being accident prone and the implications that that would have on water desalination, electric power generation from Kuwait all the way down to the UAE, inclusive of Iran. Well, in the uh, latest, once again, in the latest long-term outlook by both the EIA and the International Energy Agency, there is expectations that there will be uh, a resurgence of new nuclear power, mostly in uh, in Japan, South Korea, and uh, China are the two the three largest uh, countries that would uh, be developing. But there's also prospects for new nuclear power, as as we've mentioned. Uh, I think by Rwanda in uh, UAE, perhaps even Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Have the uh, fears over safety and waste disposal been overcome? I think there's still, in this, at least in the United States, uh, uh, a ways to go and, and concerns over nuclear proliferation as well. So although uh, there will be growth in nuclear power, uh, it will remain relatively unchanged in terms of the share of total energy based on the outlooks of those uh, two organizations that I just mentioned. What are the politics of controlling carbon emissions here in the United States or globally? Uh, can a cap-and-trade system work? Will such a system ever become politically feasible? What are the alternatives to cap-and-trade? And perhaps, Sarah, you might focus on that if you would, and define for uh, the non-energy specialist what cap and trade is. Oh, sure. Yeah, the cap and trade program um, is a system that was actually based on uh, a program that was invented here in the United States. It's how we manage sulfur dioxide uh, here in the United States. Basically, um, set a cap on the amount of emissions of a given set of greenhouse gases uh, that you're able to emit. 
and then you allow uh, facilities to trade above or below that cap. So if you're more efficient, then you get extra credits and you can sell them to somebody who wasn't able to reduce their emissions by as much and hopefully you get to make more money off that market than you spent on reducing emissions. And so it's a way of trying to um, uh, overall sort of limit the amount of greenhouse gases emitted um, but allow companies to be able to either make money or um, adjust in the most cost-effective way to um, meeting the caps that are on their uh, on their current. Um, the politics of climate change are always changing. Uh, they've actually become more uh, attractive uh, in the last several years than they've been before, and largely that's um, due to public education. People know a lot more about climate change. Um, they feel more certain about science, even with all the climate gate and other controversies that have happened earlier this year. Um, but the politics are always difficult because um, you're, you're essentially trying to do something that, as I said, um, puts energy that's generally more expensive than the incumbent system uh, into the system, and you're asking people to pay for it. Uh, and that's always economically quite difficult, um, politically quite difficult to do. Um, but there's there's benefits, and so the whole idea is that the energy system we have is based on um, not full cost economics, right? It doesn't take into consideration the environmental consequences of energy production and use. And um, by putting a cost for carbon, either through a cap and trade program or a carbon tax or strictly regulation, you can do it all those different ways. Cap and trade is supposed to be sort of the um, uh, the the preferred method of the environmentalists who like to have a hard cap on, on emissions um, and uh, economists who like to have some sort of uh, economically uh, efficient system. Both of them might prefer another option, but that seems to be the one that they, uh, they agree on together. Um, to have that kind of a system would put that cost for carbon into the economy and start having the energy system we have take into account the potential cost of having um, emissions into the atmosphere and what the impacts of that might be. Um, it doesn't take into consideration other things like water issues, um, which in other regions of the world are, are as big an environmental issue uh, as climate change, even though they're, they're connected. Um, the politics are quite difficult, and at an international level, they're even more difficult. Um, you get into issues of uh, uh, whether or not uh, developed economies are now trying to um, uh, stifle the growth of, of, of major, rapidly emerging, developing economies. Um, how we, we as, as sort of a developed a, a society, would like other countries to develop on alternative fuel sources when we, in fact, didn't do it ourselves, um, is really sort of at the crux of a lot of those discussions. And so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of sort of uh, of, of those dynamics. Um, but there's. I think that the, the one lesson to be learned from something like the cap and trade program or environmental policy in general um, is, and it's something we might do well to, to learn in this country, is you know, a lot of times when you start those kinds of policies, they can't be perfect from the outset, and they won't be. Um, but you're looking at them over uh, multi-decadal uh, timeframes, um, and a learning by doing approach is actually quite useful, and this is, is particularly important when you look at something like a cap and trade program, um, any type of, uh, of finance low carbon energy systems, both in terms of learning more about technologies, learning more about how much how carbon plays uh, in, in our economy in general, um, how society responds to cost for carbon, and how the uh, the environment is actually changing, are all ways that we have to continue to learn as we implement this process. And so. Um, the politics uh, are often really heated uh, to such an extent that they don't give us the opportunity to actually engage in some of these learning processes, which would make all of the tools we have for dealing with this situation a lot better. Thank you. Uh, you segue into the next question. I wanted to 
thank very quickly 10 people who are here who have been among our long-term supporters, uh, Mrs. Lois Critchfield, Robert Tregoyne, and Leila Inagurnis Dane, who have been judges for more than 20 years for a leadership development program, Robert Anton Mertz, Jim Winship, Evan Murphy, Lewis Abood, Elizabeth Borson, and that last noise, Ms. Jacqueline Tice from the Supreme Court of the United States. There's Russia show signs that they are looking to form relations with strategic places in the Middle East. And if so, what's driving that direction? And are these relations based mainly on energy trade or something else? And in any case, what does this mean for the Middle East, Russia, and the United States? Related to it, what is the impact of Russian energy production on global security, especially in Europe and Central Asia? And to what extent, if any, will Russia be a major player in the future development of Iran's energy resources? story when I served in the Bush administration immediately after 9-11. Um, prior to 9-11, we had had what was called the National Energy Policy. It was basically a playbook. Uh, we started writing it in January of 2001. We finished it in May of 2001. And, you know, it was pretty comprehensive. Um, everything Bush administration wanted to do with respect to the energy area when it came to oil and energy production. We certainly talked a lot about the Middle East and our relationship in particular with Saudi Arabia. After 9-11, everything changed. And there was a considerable shift in policy to move towards other suppliers of petroleum in the world, in particular Russia. So I, as a senior advisor to the Secretary of Energy, found myself in Moscow quite a bit. Um, what has happened over the years, which is an interesting sort of development, is uh, Russia has always been a, a producer and, and a major one, never a member of OPEC, uh, but never quite up to the capacity that everyone had hoped for. And that's the reality with respect to Russia. We also had many complications with respect to transparency and politics. And what had happened since 2001 is the United States, from a policy perspective, slowly but surely realized that Russia was not going to be able to fit the bill and replace any one of those larger producers, in particular Saudi Arabia or others in the Arab world. Um, and so we've had this ongoing interesting relationship, certainly with Russia as an oil producer. Uh, the other thing I can say is uh, we won't want to get into history lessons here, but there's a long and complicated political relationship between Russia and the Middle East um, that has nothing to do with energy and oil production, but has everything to do with philosophy, politics, and whatnot. Uh, so that's what I'll say about that. Russia is the single largest repository. How's that? Okay. Uh, Russia is the single largest repository of uh, the world's um, uh, natural gas, and um, uh, it's close uh, on, on oil uh, to Saudi Arabia uh, in terms of just having the goods. So the ability to uh, exercise an interest on the part of that uh, capability is, is a natural, it's a, it's a perfectly understandable thing. And there has been talk over, over uh, the last
last couple of years of whether or not Russia and, say, Qatar and Algeria could form an OPEC-like uh, organization regarding natural gas. Uh, uh, they've had uh, some nice lip service. Uh, people haven't seen uh, a, a thing uh, that would look like an, uh, an actual uh, cartel. And these days on natural gas, that seems pretty unlikely given uh, the impact of uh, the, the uh, shale gas play in the United States and potential elsewhere. Um, if you are sitting in the Middle East today, uh, in addition to the many other things you have to worry about, um, you might, as a planner of future investment for modernization, for the marketplace, with respect to hydrocarbons, you might wonder about two things very centrally. One is the impact of a political decision from Moscow to suddenly open up, or maybe not even so suddenly, but to engage in greater um, expansion uh, uh, and extraction of these very abundant natural resources, and that will impact the global marketplace. The other would be any sudden and substantial disruption of uh, oil and natural gas from, say, Iran. So if you're in the Middle East right now, uh, that's a pretty tough neighborhood. It's a pretty tough uh, couple of uh, factors to keep in mind. Uh, you would like to make sure that nothing precipitous happens in your neighborhood. Uh, so you would like to have people uh, not have uh, urgent attacks or sudden um, uh, uh, devolutions of power, disruptions of, uh, of uh, resources, uh, or uh, uh, other steps to destabilize what is, after all, a fairly delicate balance. Um, you would also like to have relationships be mutually reinforcing. That is to say, in, in, a, in a fairy tale-like bit of language, you want things to be not too cold, not too cold, not too hot. You want them just right. Um, and where just right fits for uh, the Middle East calculus is moving all the time. Uh, it's a delicate uh, uh, terrain to work in. It behooves us and others to be in close and uh, constant consultation with this very important region to share analysis uh, and to cooperate um, as much as possible on what uh, is likely in any given week and how we would stand together, where, if we can't stand together, what that means. Thank you, Molly. We have several uh, crisp uh, questions. I'll read them in that order. One of them is from uh, one of uh, Northern Africa's uh, emerging leaders of tomorrow, uh, who works uh, at the Robert E. Osgood Center for International Studies here in the United States. How much oil is there in Africa? And how is the relationship developing between America and Africa in terms of oil? Number two, from the congressman's office, if the U.S. 
mandates automakers to produce flex-fueled vehicles and provides incentives for gas stations to install flex-fuel pumps. What effect would this have on the United States petroleum vendors? Another one? Renewables have been around for a long time. Where, what realistically needs to be done politically and economically to make renewable technology a single dependable reality nationally and or globally? Another, I would like to hear your views on the frequent assertion that, that all, or at least most, world companies inflate their war reserve figures. And then there's one for Rwanda. Uh, if we can assume the fallacies you mentioned are so ingrained in the American psychic that they cannot be easily corrected, what are your thoughts on the use of these fallacies to push a greater renewable energy integration and energy efficiency initiatives. So we'll go first to the one on Africa. Any papers? Well, I think uh, West Africa in particular, the deep water, uh, Angola, Nigeria, Guinea, there has enormous uh, additional potential. And it, it goes back to one of the earlier questions. Will the investments actually be made on a timely basis, and what will the impact of the uh, perhaps more stringent environmental concerns over offshore drilling be? But assuming that those uh, concerns are overcome, I think uh, West Africa in particular will be one area which is a very a bright spot for new exploration, development, and production. It's not going to overtake the uh, Gulf states, but nevertheless, it's an area of uh, uh, enormous potential, and uh, it also happens to be uh, high quality, uh, low sulfur crude uh, oil as well. All right, we just have time for short answers to these. The questions are fairly straightforward. Uh, your views on the frequent assertion that all or at least most oil companies inflate their oil reserve figures. My view is uh, if there are uh, companies that are registered uh, in the United States, they have to meet these SEC requirements for uh, the definition of reserve. So I think uh, I would disagree with that in terms of the, if they're a private company and have to report to the SEC. All right. The one about if the U.S. mandated automakers to produce flex fuel vehicles. And if it provided incentives for gas stations to install flex fuel pumps, what effect would this have on the United States petroleum dependence, if any? Yeah, I think one of the points that uh, Molly made um, about sort of U.S. saturation of, uh, of the vehicle fleet, or in terms of uh, how many vehicles we're going to be, how big a car market we're going to be, uh, and our own sort of gasoline demand um, show that it, you know, it takes a long time to make a really impactful change uh, in terms of how much gasoline we consume. Um, so we, we've already got about 10% ethanol in, in the gasoline that we that we use. Um, anything beyond that is a massive infrastructure lift in certain parts of the country. Some places it makes a lot of sense to have 100% ethanol and, and, and use that uh, uh, both in terms of your vehicles and in terms of the infrastructure that it requires uh, because 
you, you have ethanol readily available, the economics are a lot better. Um, there's a lot of talk about having compressed natural gas because of the natural gas resources that we've got in the United States, um, both in terms of the long-term, long-haul trucking fleet uh, and uh, in terms of personal vehicles. Again, the obstacles are, are primarily economic uh, in these senses, and some of them have uh, regulatory barriers. So um, there, there could be a, a big impact, um, uh, but it takes time. Uh, to play out, uh, and the economics have to be right, or the uh, the level of investment that's needed um, just hasn't quite been there. I don't know that. Okay, the last question is: Do more separated by semicolon? Renewables have been around for a long time. What realistically needs to be done, politically and economically, to make renewable technology a single dependable reality, nationally and or globally? After the semicolon. If we can assume the fallacies that Ms. Fatmigradon mentioned are so ingrained in the American psyche that they cannot be easily corrected, what are your thoughts on, on the use of these fallacies to push for greater renewable energy integration and energy efficiency in, initiatives? I'd say the single biggest thing that um, politically that is needed to uh, do something about making renewables um, a bigger part of the energy mix um, is our ability to have a conversation about paying more for energy. Um, because all the policies that we talk about are either designed to drive the cost down to technologies over time uh, or create incentives um, to be able to uh, uh, push those technologies into the current system and that requires um, a higher energy price. It doesn't have to be a markedly higher energy price, but it does have to allow for competition with um, the fuels that have sort of the incumbent advantage. Um, there's ways of doing that. Um, interestingly enough, Stanford University had a poll out not too long ago that asked people whether they'd be, um, uh, how much they'd like to spend um, to have renewables as part of the system, both for climate change reasons and energy reasons. Um, and and, and the, they, you know, the answer was not that much. Uh, but they wouldn't mind regulation that forced companies to do it. <laughs> so they don't mind the cost, but they don't want to see it. Um, and I think that that's probably, uh, that's unfortunate. And I think that the, the conversation has to be about what you're actually paying for um, with those costs. There's lots of policies um, to drive renewables into the system, and um, they're different in different places. So that's a much, a much bigger conversation. But I think that, that at the crux of it, that's probably the conversation we need to have here. And it doesn't have to always be more expensive. It can be less expensive over time, but you have to get there. You have to have the policies that um, actually get that train moving. In bringing this to a close, um, for the young ones here, uh, don't be shy in walking up to some of the grown-ups here and introducing yourself. Hi, I'm X from this university or city. I'm majoring this or that, or I'm hoping to become this or that. And, uh, Ask them for that advice because there's a lot of wisdom in this particular room and empirical experience expanding more than a generation. You mentioned about the educational mission. Uh, there are 3,800 universities in the United States minimum, and the National Council has an alumnus, an alumna, and 800 of them from the social sciences, the arts, and the humanities. Dr. Winship is one of them. That we've taken to the 12 Arab countries that those step programs and of the leadership development among the 25,500 alumni of this particular program. So we wanted to thank all of you for coming. At one point, there were more than 200 people in this room, and we can look at it with a degree of self-effacement and honest humility. <laughs>
University who wish there's no possible graduation. <laughs> on the best of days, we're lucky if we get it. Thank you all for that.